Rachel Eshikbofe Ikeme is a Whiteley Award-winning conservationist and project director at the Southwest Niger Delta Forest Project. Rachel won the award in 2020 for her work on chimpanzee populations in Nigeria and is aiming to secure 20% of chimpanzee habitat in Southwest Nigeria. Rachel Ashikbofe Ikeme and Southwest and Niger Delta Forest Projects, welcome to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a conservationist. I don't believe it was what you originally imagined for yourself. Well, I've listened to so many people who became conservationists, and my own path was not your usual atypical path. And I didn't grow up living near a forest or near a reserve or a park or seeing the wildlife and thinking to myself, this is what I want to be when I grow up. So I certainly didn't have those kind of upbringing or background. I grew up in a northern cosmopolitan city in Nigeria. So being a conservationist was never anything in that direction. To be honest, I was that type of child. I wanted to be everything. I wanted to be a sports person. I was creative as well. I wanted to be an artist. And so they were just all layers to the kind of person I was growing up and I was uncovering those layers as I was going. So my parents really couldn't figure me out. Couldn't figure out myself either. And I didn't know for sure what I wanted to be, but I was interested in a lot of things and I was skilled and I wasn't sure where that was going to take me. So venturing into conservation really was a pure accident. So it was later on in life, I graduated from the university looking for a job like every typical Nigerian graduate has gone through the one-year mandatory National Youth Service Corps. And I was desperate to leave home. I was desperate to get a job and all of that, like everybody else. So Nigeria has a huge young population. Unemployment rate has always been very high. So you will be doubly lucky to have left school and get a job immediately. So I studied public administration in the university. So yeah, I was with this degree, which I didn't know where I would fit in into the society. And I started sending in applications everywhere, any company. So that's where I stumbled upon the ad for conservation internship with the Nigeria Conservation Foundation was the foremost conservation NGO in the country. And they wanted you to write an essay and they were looking for six interns. I didn't really think too much about the organization that was behind the ad. I only noticed that they had put them sponsored by Start Oil. So this is like an oil job. <laughs> so I didn't really try to Google. Having access to the internet was really kind of a rare privilege for some of us. And so I didn't really find the time to sit down, read up about the organization. I just assumed that if it was sponsored by Start Oil, that means it was an oil-related work. And they needed to write an essay about preserving our natural resources, which I did. I mean, I used common sense to write that essay and then send that. And so to my amazement, I was shortly said to be interviewed. So I traveled all the way to Lagos. And so that started my journey in conservation. I mean, I got there with hundreds that were invited for that interview. So if you don't pass every stage, you'll be sent home and then you go on to the next stage. So it was that kind of system. So at the last stage, it was now a one-on-one -on -one interview time. And the day I was already far gone. And then there I was sitting down. And those of us who have been invited for that interview have now been cut down to a few number. And so they were now going around and were like, the day is struggle. We can't do one-on-one -on -one interview with everybody. So we're going to group you into your disciplines. And so if you study botany, come over here, you're all going to be interviewed. At the same time, if you studied zoology, come over here, you're going to be interviewed at the same time. So it was just on and on like that. 
And then got to me, I was like, I was in any group and they were like, what did you study? And I was like, public administration. And the person who was coordinating this was like, how did you get here? And so I was like, oh, you tell me, you have shortlisted me to this point. And I don't know. And it was at that point I realized that I was about to be sent back because the person just realized, like, I just, I had this irrelevant degree. <laughs> Let me use that word. And so I quickly used applied wisdom in this situation. And I said, oh, since you have a group for sociology, why don't you group me with the people who study sociology? And so that was how I got away with being interviewed that day. I was grouped with another two ladies who were within the discipline of sociology. And then I went in for the interview and they told us they would get back to us. And so that's how I got into conservation. I got into one of those six internships and I became an intern in conservation. A few weeks later after that interview, I was shortlisted. And the rest is a very long history. The work that you do today, which has, in terms of conservation, been awarded the Whitley Award in 2020, just help us understand the urgency of the situation and why you've gone behind it. Because the ecosystems that you're protecting and a few different projects in Nigeria is like 95% of that ecosystem has disappeared in the last decade. And two decades ago, you had forests and the ecosystem was thriving. How can be ecosystems be regenerated? There is no question we are in a state of conservation emergency. And I found myself before we started the work we're doing currently. Two of those projects are trying to save one, an endemic species that only occurs in Niger Delta in Nigeria. And the other is also a recently discovered unique form of chimpanzee in southwestern Nigeria. So in those two cases, we have a real situation on our hands. And it's so fragile that if we take a step back right now, we could say goodbye to these species and to their forest. It's that fragile, it's that sensitive kind of work we're doing. And so we got into it at the point in time when it was literally at the brink of extinction. The forests were at the brink of disappearing forever. And I witnessed that for myself. I worked in some forests, say, back in 2007, 2008, 2009. And I roamed this forest. I started off as a conservation researcher. And I was really thriving in my element there as a researcher. And I was happy to produce this data and give people. My intention was never to become a conservation practitioner that I am today. So it was this same agency we are speaking about that made me to step in. Like there was just nobody else that was willing or was ready to go into all the sites and do this work we're doing right now. Maybe you've read up some things about the Niger Delta. They are really at a point in time, it was just immersed in a lot of oil politics and conflicts and there was civil conflicts everywhere. There was kidnapping and insecurity throughout that region. And so besides insecurity, there was just very few across the country that would take on some of these conservation issues. Let's not forget Nigeria is Africa's most populous nation. Now we are over 200 million people in the country and it's a growing population of young people who are looking for a means of livelihood and constantly on the lookout to get more space, invade more spaces. So it's really a quagmire of a lot of issues. Ordinarily, it would seem insurmountable for anybody to step in. And really, it would be crazy for you to think you would get in there and step into a mess 
personally, in my own mindset, I was very hopeful that things would change because I had seen things, like I said, look so bad. I had seen, for example, being in a place, collecting data on some species and going back the following year to just update this data I've collected on species on the forest and get there. And then it's already turned into a village settlement. So it's that kind of rate of conversion of forest or disappearance of forest that we're talking about year in, year out. So what was forest today was a village tomorrow. It was a mess and the prospects were not looking very bright. And I think that leading on to winning some of these conservation awards and just getting all this recognition was a testament to really, I think at the back of my mind, I felt it would be really difficult for me to go to bed and know this problem exists and not do anything about it. Indeed. And I think that makes you unusual because a lot of times in the scientific community, scientists are hesitant to be activists. Even in the conservation community, they're more like, these are the results. I'm not making a judgment. And so we actually can't be that passive when we are facing our own extinction and extinction of other species and habitats and ecosystems. So I think that your resilience and also you're not defined by, you know, you're a woman. And I know that that makes lots of other problems in Nigeria and around the world. But you're not defined by, I went to university for this. I'm just going to stay here. So I think that background, being familiar with public policy and management, I think that really serves you well. So go into that a little bit of what that means, being a woman conservationist and then facing and trying to change some of these outdated laws, government stagnancy. What does that mean facing poachers and the various interests that don't want to see change? Mia, yeah, to be honest with you, I'm still that professional who would prefer to play safe, who would prefer not to do what I'm doing right now. Shake the tables like some people we call it or just just start agitating for a cause or for a purpose. So even at this point, I still feel a bit of anxiety and a lot of self-insecurity. I mean, I'm not so confident in myself. It's to the extent that I feel like at every phase, I'm willing to go for them. I'm willing to continue. It's difficult every step of the way. It's challenging. And for all of the issues, like, for example, you've mentioned, whether it's outdated policy, lack of political will, whether it's the dangerous situations and the insecurities that are prevalent in the country and the competition between human population and the competition for food and land and for space that makes conservation unthinkable in the kind of country where we have. Those very situations are still in existence right now, even as we work. And just confronting that and coming face to face with the situation, I'm still very scared doing what I'm doing. I'm scared leaving my comfort zone. So I shouldn't deceive anybody. Of course, it's not as hard as it was when I started out. I was young as a woman in an African society like Nigeria. The challenges were huge. They seemed almost impossible to be able to break through it. But I overcame most of it. And we're still overcoming that. But still, it shouldn't give any impression that I've come to the place where it has gotten better and I'm finding it easier. It says we have results, but sustaining those results comes with equally the same level of challenges. It's just that your confidence gets better over time and your faith in what you're doing gets better over time and you're built up by it. That if I overcame yesterday, I will overcome today. And every day is a daily preparation to surmount these troubles. It's inspiring and your courage, and I can only imagine what you face. I mean, it's difficult for activists 
all over, but it, some countries have a little bit more regulation and oversight. And so just help us understand the situation on the ground as we face the rapid environmental changes and all those other structural situations that you discussed. Tell us about the safe havens there and what determines whether species adapt or shift their ranges or go extinct. I, I doubt there are any safe havens. I think that basically for a country like Nigeria, for the sites where I work, it's very simple and very straightforward. And there are no complexities about it in terms of the environmental challenges that this species face. Once the forest goes, this species is going to go. And so you have a land space or a region that is dominated by people. And it has one of the highest human population cities in the whole world. So it's either people or the species. So the demand for resources, the forest resources, the wood, the land space for building, and then for the species in itself as food for the same people who live close to this species. They are just not safe havens. And we are finding that out and unraveling that and trying to work with that reality for these species to continue to survive in these landscapes. It's very hard to paint the picture of what the realities are on ground. The main issue being a lot of people need demanding the same resources and the wildlife. If you add that to insecurity of human lives in these areas, you would know that it's a very, very complex situation that it's not that easy to untie and it's not that easy to come up with a solution as to how to resolve it. Doesn't mean that we can put solutions in a book or in a paper for someone to read and say, oh, one plus one equals two. That's a straightforward solution for any situation you find yourself, conservation issues in human-dominated landscapes. It doesn't work like that. I mean, that's why I meant that by day-to-day -day struggle to really sustain the efforts and sustain the results we have gotten so far. One of the lessons we have learned with the work we're doing, one of the areas where we work, we created a community-based conservation area. And it is that same area that's helped to bring back the species, one old species from the brink of extinction. And one of the lessons we're learning is that where the problem is with people, because like I said earlier, it's either species or people. So one of the things we're learning is that people can really be transformed. We saw that in real life, like how a community can be transformed totally to the point that an entire community has become conservation champions themselves. So knowing that people can turn 360 and just really become the protectors of the same species they try to wipe out. So it's having faith in, in people that I would say that's where lies the potentials or the propensity to really change a very, very dire situation. I think it, you identify something because it's hard to put across sometimes. People think, oh, there's so many species. And if one species goes extinct, it's not just that it has reverberates of, through the mutualism within forests and within the ecosystems. It upsets the balance. So it actually is it's about our human health and planetary health because it affects even our nutrition and our diet and all those things. So it's like changing that mindset it must be challenging. Absolutely. I mean... You and I understand that because we've studied up on these things. And in my case, especially, I've seen it in real life. I've seen that play out. I've seen local extinctions of species upset the balances across that area. Also, I've seen flooding in some parts of the country where previously there were no issues of flood. And so 
we can understand that and we can relate with that because we've looked at it in holistically and scientifically. But for the people who are responsible for protecting the wildlife and these wild spaces, they are clueless. Oh, and it's really hard to pass this message across because for them, especially if you go to a place like the Niger Delta that is sitting right on huge oil resources and they've seen oil companies come in and out, they've become disillusioned by the politics that plays out in oil. And so when you as a stranger come in and someone who's not native to the environment and come in and start preaching conservation, you're automatically branded as somebody who wants something to get something out of them. Like, oh yeah, it's one of those people selling us cock and bull stories just to take our lands, to take our resources and all of that. And it's not just for places like in the Niger Delta. I mean, anywhere in the world where people are not, shall I say, formally trained to understand what we understand in terms of the ecosystem and how animals or plants or the forest plays a role in our own health. When that formal knowledge is lacking, it's really, really hard to transfer that to another human being and let alone a community of people. Also talking about people in the political class who should make the decision to safeguard these places or wildlife. So people talk a lot about conservation education and they do that in schools, recruiting young people. But on our part, we're realizing that the young people we have won't grow up to see any biodiversity left in the country if we don't educate the political class. So we found ourselves teaching basic conservation education to people who are in government, people who are very well educated in other fields, who have power, who have positions, and we're giving the same conservation education you would do for a primary school student. It's the same level of education you would give to them, and you do it consistently. So we found that we had to target those group of people for conservation education if we have to make any progress in the work we are doing. And so it was not an easy fit at all to convince those two groups of people, indigenous communities, and people in the political class to take seriously the conservation issues that were happening in real time. And it's really allowing them to see for themselves who live close to the wildlife and they see it for themselves. They see it in clean waters, having clean rivers, having more fish, having more of those resources that was already diminishing. And it's in these practical, positive outcomes that they see in real time. That's when lies the transformation. And now they have that transformed mind that essentially these forests are not just linked to the survival of monkeys and the trees. It's also linked to their own survivors as people. So adding that up in their heads was very important for them. Yeah, so it's really interesting that you try to advocate conversation on a big versus small scale. And like the educational aspect you just talked about, I was kind of wondering what are the most challenging aspects of a public and private conservation model? For instance, is there more acceptance for certain parts of projects based on the level of involvement or work to achieve a certain goal? It's really hard for me to answer this because I've really done this level of work in Nigeria. Of course, I've seen examples elsewhere outside of Africa, but for Nigeria, I think one of the lessons we learned is that there is no one size fits all. There's no formula anywhere that you could apply. I mean, you could read up on a lot of conservation successes, conservation projects that are going on across the world. 
and learns one or two things from what they're doing. But in practice, I think what's more beneficial is to tailor the solutions to the particular environment where you are. So you can't take a shortcut in this. You can't just go into an area and start implementing conservation solutions that you've read up somewhere. It doesn't work. Especially in a country like Nigeria, we work in two different sites within the same country, Southern Nigeria, and we're applying two different models working there. One is a public-private partnership kind of model, the co-management system, and the other is a community-based conservation area. We found that because of the dynamism of the people within this region, you can't implement a program that first village just couldn't work in the neighboring village because the people think different act different and and expect different so we've learned to tailor solutions to a specific site and considering or factoring in the mentalities the histories and the behavior the characters of the people who dwell in that area and to work with whatever system is on ground already for example if that area has always been had some kind of government involvement then you have no choice but to work with the government and with the people but if government involvement has always been absent you will want to work only with indigenous people in such a way, because what you're looking for are the actors within that landscape that would help to not just make decisions, but take actions. And so on that point of traditions, it's sometimes because we have these uh, conversations with activists that people say, oh, it's our tradition, you know, so you're overcoming something that's been done centuries, like child marriage, you know, and so actually taking a stand is something that is like reversing a culture. So how did you find the courage within that? Because to to navigate that is quite tricky. I, I think the entirety of the work we do, we are navigating a lot of embedded preconceived notion or tradition or culture, and especially in Africa, None of that is easy to navigate. You can't do without stepping on toes (laughs) while upsetting the system that was in place. For example, one of the sites where we created the conservation areas, we, we worked there for seven years before the creation, the establishment of that conservation areas. It shouldn't take that long or it wouldn't take that long, probably a year or two years. You really learned everything you need to learn. Maybe some places are not as hard as others. But for us in those seven years, it's really understanding how these people think, what are their histories and their experiences, and then taking that into consideration. I think one of the most important things in navigating traditions and cultures is in respecting people's beliefs. Like you say, child marriage, for example. It started from somewhere and coming in with a different perception, of course, as wrong as it seemed to you who is coming in to try and change things, you should also respect that those things started from histories that brought these people to practice such things. And you need to have a respect for them knowing their ancestors practice this doesn't mean you have to practice it. Your ancestors killed monkeys for food doesn't mean that it's still right to do so. And this was some of the arguments we had, like who would be educating hunters? And they'll be like, hunting has been part of our history. My daddy's daddy was a hunter and I have to carry on the tradition. And the monkeys are everywhere in the forest. They will always be dead and they would keep telling you that. And meanwhile, 
Scientific evidence we're gathering from that same area shows that the wildlife has been so depleted that encounter rates, even for the hunters themselves, is way lower than when they even started hunting. But they won't admit that just because you brought all the scientific evidence and facts. You have to come from a place where you acknowledge that, yes, there is a tradition, the history, and respect their ancestors. And so that's just one way to navigate some of these issues of traditions or cultures that are so embedded that contradict or are counterproductive for conservation. As a current biology student, I have had my fair share of talks about conservation and the ways to go about it. I think over the years, I developed this preconceived notion about protecting the world's forests and animals, and it ended up limiting my view about ways to help dying species. Because before this interview, I had assumed that Rachel would be using similar efforts that I've seen the U.S. use, such as bringing animals out of their natural habitat and then reincorporating them when it was safe. I quickly learned that this is just not applicable to other areas of the world, and there is not a one-size-fits-all when talking about these kinds of issues. Rachel specifically emphasized using local communities to protect endangered species and teaching basic conservation to people in political power. Without the community supporting the efforts to save its surroundings, there is likely little hope that it can be saved by solely the work of outside people or by brute force. And I think personally, it was a good reminder to think about the multiple ways to achieve success within the realm of conservation and ways to improve our current understanding of environmental issues. To me, it can sometimes be easy to assume everyone understands the need to protect endangered species and how it can all relate back to us humans and also be detrimental if we allow them to go extinct. But Rachel reminded me that sometimes it takes going back to those fundamental concepts about the environment before making all of these plans to save it. It takes respecting the land and the people that come with it to make sure we can all work together. This interview helped me broaden my views about conservation and the ways it can be achieved on a local and global scale, with both being very, very important to address. And now, back to the interview. And I think that you put it across very well because you're educated about the issues and also passionate. And I think it's just overcoming this mindset because when we have climate change, when we have rapid population growth and we have faced pandemics, which are coming often with the intersection of rapid urbanizations and people inhabiting areas where humans weren't inhabiting. I think that when you engage people on their self-preservation, you know, like we don't want to have another pandemic that comes a crossing of different species and rapid expansion, then I think that's one way that they kind of like, oh, okay, well, I lost family members or I lost, yes. you know. You know, the thing is about even the pandemic was really difficult to use the pandemic as opening a discourse on that issue because before then there was Ebola. And when there was a outbreak, especially in West Africa, and then they got to Nigeria, a lot of people said, oh yeah, they're for monkeys, they're for monkeys. And so many people left hunting, too many people stopped bushmeat consumption during that period. And then when hunger, or should I say poverty, took over, some of them went back to hunting and bushmeat consumption and they thought, oh yeah, maybe this Ebola is, is not real, it doesn't really exist, and it was just a scare tactics. And so when COVID came, it wasn't so easy to bring them into alignment with the realities of how all of their actions are impacting. So by the time you come in with a discussion and they counter it, they find, oh yeah, but Ebola happened. 
So this too, we can always somehow say nobody died in this community, nothing happened. This is a rich man's diseases. That's not something to do with us. We are poor people in the village and these are city people's problems, not our problems. So when they tell you that, it's very hard to come back from that. So I think one of the things that really helps is just really to be in tune so much with them as people and identify with them. I think that's participatory process of seeing yourself like one of them, then it's made easier to be able to change mindsets and to transform their minds about any issue. We were talking about these external factors that kind of revert back to natural practices like hunting and stuff like that. How does protecting biodiversity go into that? Does reimplementation of species that are threatened have to reach a certain threshold before being released to still survive against these certain pressures and factors like hunting? that could still continue. I've not worked in a situation where we had to take species out and reintroduce them back into the wild. I doubt if reintroduction will ever happen in areas that are not protected. But areas where I work are like areas that were initially not protected. And then we had to work through the process of getting the laws enacted. One of the things I think it's very important is that, say, for example, in the sites where we work, all of the rangers used to be hunters, used to be loggers, used to be farmers. So now these people are now conservationists. Literally, I think it would even be so hard for someone to stop being a ranger today and go back to hunting because in the process of being employed in this system of protection, they have become also transformed themselves. Unless if the protected area manager or a person like myself who is directing the work is not doing a good enough job. Because if you do your job well, those people who are now employed within to protect that area should be transformed in their minds. In fact, they become ambassadors to the other people in the community. So the whole community has known this guy as the most prolific. And today he's preaching, conserve wildlife. I've loved animals. Animals are the best, are they're wonderful. So it's even easier for the community to change their mindset about eating bushmeat or about hunting or about going to destroy the forest of wildlife. That's really how protection ought to work. You can't do it outside of them. But while you are trying to change things, you also actively have to make sure they are participating in the entire process. From the time it's been thought through to the time it's been implemented and to the time it's been evaluated, they are, they are part of the process. So once that happens, the transformation occurs naturally within that circle. And so those same people who are part of the process are become ambassadors and become champions for those same species you're trying to, you're trying to protect. So that's how I think it ought to work in every biodiversity conservation situation. For us, that's where we've seen the best results. That's where we've seen the most progress. And I've also heard of people come up with very technical step-by-step -step details of how things ought to go and leave the people out and leave indigenous communities out of that same process. And I feel like it was so difficult to sustain that system of doing biodiversity conversation. Yes. And I had this conversation with the founder of Saving Nature, and I guess he's a global extinction expert. And it had surprised me because like you, he was identifying that there is a role for poachers. And he was when the community has nothing, they bring valuable money. They might be able to pay for malarial nets. You have to work this out. It's hard to put your mind around it. That there's a kind of necessary level of poaching, like you can fish, but you shouldn't overfish, all these sort of things. But tell me about some of your transformations 
transformative experiences in these ecosystems with the primates and the chimpanzees that you are protecting, where you've seen growth and progress, and just the personal connection that you've had with the animals you're protecting. There's been lots of aha moments and very fond memories just from what we've been doing. And it's really hard for me to pick anyone apart because it's just like everything came together somehow in my head in real life. There's a way I'm a Christian, there's a way the Bible puts it like all things work together for good. So it's the same way with this. I mean, it's hard to separate any experience because all of these experiences have come full circle like they've come together and whether good or bad because somehow the good the bad the ugly all came together to work for that common good of protecting the species like sometime last year one of my team members was killed in the line of duty it was a bad situation and this was a key member of my team who was instrumental in the results we got and i was devastated for me i felt like i would give up anything i would even give up the work just to get him back living alive. But one of the things that his death taught me or made me to now see was that we now face the situation where I was devastated. I put the projects on hold and I didn't know how to move forward from there. I take a lot of risk as a person, but I feel like I signed up for it. I'm so passionate that for years I, I made up my mind. Even when I go into scary situations, I'm already aware that this is life or death. But anyways, I go in because I, I feel like I signed up for my team today. And I don't think there was ever a time every single one of them that joined the team I got them to that place in their mind where I'm like, oh, you could die doing this. <laughs> I don't think there was ever any discussion with them about that. I may have had a discussion within my own self, but I'm, I've never had a discussion with any of the team members. So when this happened, it was so devastating that it almost killed the entire project, as far as I was concerned in my own mind. But one thing that I was just so inspired by all the other team members, I was like just waiting for them to start calling me and saying, we are not interested in this anymore. We didn't think that someone was going to die doing this. You know, there were so many negative expectations I was having. But on the contrary to my amazement, when I approached some members of the team or when I gathered the rest of the team, everyone was like looking at me like, you're the only one who is scared. You're the only one who is devastated. We are in this. We see for ourselves that somebody could die doing this, but we are not shaking. And these are men and women who have families, who have young children, and they are breadwinners in their home. So that's why I said it came to that realization that while we started out thinking this was a war between people and species, we are now seeing that there was like a unity <laughs> Within these people, there was something about them that connected to the whole purpose of what we do. And that experience made me to realize that everybody else, these people were former hunters, these people were former loggers or what have you. They are just like me. They have the same passion within them in the work I do. So I'm telling you right now, Mia, when I started out doing conservation, I didn't know any other Nigerian female doing what I was doing. But today I have 55 strong team members who I know that if anything ever happens to me right now, they are in their own right conservation champions and they would lead on this course no matter what. Like they are so well built within themselves and so passionate just like I am for the species. And all of these people came from the local communities, came from local institutions. 
around the school. They didn't come from any far-fetched place. They didn't have any previous experience before getting here. In answering now your question, I think once upon a time, like for example, the Niger Delta Red Colobus Monkey, it would take weeks for you to sight one. Today, you will go one day and see the species. I don't need any other evidence other than that. Like this is what the species that was literally at the edge was going to be wiped off. And we knew the time frame when it would happen. Like after the next logging season, these species wouldn't exist anymore. We knew it. And we were at that stage when we started conserving it. And today, in three years, the species has multiplied that you could go in the field in one day. I could assure you, you would see them. But this was a far-fetched reality when we started out. The monkeys, when they perceive a human kilometer away, they've started running already. They don't go near people. Hunting was the order of the day. It would take long weeks for you to see one single animal. And so we are seeing them today. And another experience was once in, in one of the communities where we work. I remember we were asking a young boy, he was just about 12 years old. And one of my team members was asking, what would you like to be when you grew up? And he pointed at me and said, that's what I want to be. The reason why this is this has come full circle for me is because when I started out as a female doing conservation, going to these communities, I don't know, I think maybe it's maybe typical African societies, but at that time, it was even like I was disrespected <laughs> for being out there doing what I was doing. Like, is it that you're not married? You don't have children? What are you doing in the middle of the forest saying you're looking for monkeys? I was disrespected or just really looked down on for doing the work I was doing. And a typical growing up young boy or a young man wouldn't look up to a woman for anything whatsoever. It would be the sending for him. But at this stage, I would see myself now being a role model for a young man, for a young boy. It's an experience that will live with me forever because I realized that not only are we bringing species back from the brink of extinction, but we're changing the way society thinks. And it makes me glad that if I hadn't been persistent, if I hadn't kept at what I was doing, I probably wouldn't have gotten society to come to this stage where a woman could be a role model for a young boy, especially in an African society. So those experiences for me are just, these are some of them that just stand out to me to make me realize that we're just on the right track. <laughs> oh, you definitely are. And I think your passion is contagious. You know, it uplifts us all and it's breaking down barriers. When you're fighting the good fight, when we're speaking up and gathering together as one voice of nature, we have to think of ourselves that way. And that's what's so uplifting. You're a warrior. Do you know where you got this fire in your belly? Yeah, that's a good question. I've not even been asked that before. I mean, I wouldn't know for sure. But one thing I would tell you is that I feel like I've always had it ever since I was a little girl. And the reason I knew that was maybe about eight years old. And I just hated how there was always that bullying class. There was this guy or this girl that bully another classmate or just make fun of the person. I just hated it. And I really would want to take on that bully. I would want to be a defender for that person. So realize that even my parents would be like, well, that's not the right way to go. Don't go fighting people. Don't go do this, you know. And I would always be cautioned and all of that. But I just make the connection later on in my career that it must have been that same spirit I brought into conservation. My parents were middle-class civil servants and, and they retired as such. And so it's really hard for me to find somewhere that fighting spirit. But I just know that somehow I grew up having it from the time I was a child. 
And I knew that I was just not somebody who would back down for, you know, a very daunting situation or someone who is trying to oppress another person. And I think that if I wasn't doing conservation, I would be doing something in line with that. Probably fight for child rights or women's rights or something like that. I would really be in that line of work anyway. So <laughs> one or the other. <laughs> Yes. And so as you think about the future and education and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, and as you think about the beauty and wonder of the natural world you're fighting so hard to protect, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? One thing I really hope I can have young people grasp is because like I started conservation quite young myself and I was initially very clueless. I was initially also not qualified and considered very irrelevant or unable to be able to tackle the issues that were right in front of me. I really wish every single young person have it within themselves to be the change maker, to be the transformer, to lead initiatives that would change the world. Like, it's like your world is right in your hands and you have the ability to do with it what you wish. It's your decision. And that's why I wish I could just impact this faith or this belief onto every young person that I see. I feel like one of the reasons why there's so much destruction to our ecosystem, to biodiversity, to the destruction to our environment is because a lot of people they feel like as long as some disasters are projected not to happen within their own time, they feel they can do whatever they want to do with it. And most of these people are in government. Most of these people are the ones making the decisions. And they live such selfish lives that they are not having any regard for the future. So that's why it, it will be irresponsible for a young person not to speak up or not to act when they see or they've gotten that knowledge of what is going on. So I always say, once you have the experience or the knowledge, it means you have been empowered. You have the calling to do something about it. So I don't think that should be taken lightly because it's like a sin for you to know the right thing to do and keep quiet about it. So I think everybody has a duty in any unit they find themselves, whether it's in their school, within their family unit, within their community. And the entire world is our community as well. So they could use the voice they have now and should not consider themselves too young to do anything about it. And they should act right away. They shouldn't wait here. Well, when I'm older, I'm going to run for president and I'm going to change the world. No, <laughs> you change the world now. <laughs> Then you run for president. That's a great advice. And I have to say that, you know, a good leader leads, but a great leader inspires others to become leaders. So yeah. I think that that's what you do. And thank you for unearthing people's passion, for your fearless passion for what's just and fair, and this optimism that you carry with you that inspires and unites people. Thank you, Rachel Ashikabolfe Ikeme and Southwest and Niger Delta Forest Projects for your work, which regenerates and protects ecosystems and primates and helps us appreciate the natural beauty and to understand ecological resilience and conservation so that we can be a part of this multi-species justice and live in greater harmony with the earth. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you, Mia. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. 
This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Rio Patel with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this episode was Rhea Patel. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.